0: Good day and welcome once again to our Bible study. We're going to be in the Gospel of John, in the book of John. We'll be starting a new chapter. We'll be in chapter 2 today, covering verses 1 through 10. And the title of today's lesson is Jesus Turns Water Into Wine. Let's go back into last week's lesson and sort of review what we learned last week. And last week we learned that we seen that Philip decides to follow Jesus. And Philip he finds Jesus, but after finding Jesus, he goes to Nathaniel. And he tells Nathaniel, he said, We found the one that Moses and the prophets spoke about, that they wrote about. And at first, if you remember last week, Nathaniel, he was kind of hesitant, very, very hesitant to follow, because Jesus was from Nazareth. Now you might say, why is that so important? Because he's from Nazareth. Because This was a place where the Roman army garrison was stationed. And the Jews, when I'm talking about the Jews, I'm meaning the general population in general, not the religious leaders, but the general population in general. They hated the Romans. But Nathaniel, he decides, I heard Nazareth's not a good place because the the Romans are located. You know, they're, they're stationed there. But 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 you know this man's from Nazareth, but I'm gonna go check it out myself. So Nathaniel takes it upon himself, and he wants to see who Jesus is. And as he was approaching Jesus, Jesus stated to the rest of the people that was there, he says, Look at this man, Nathaniel. Nathaniel is a man of character, he's a man of integrity. And after hearing this, Nathaniel. He questions Jesus and he, he tells Jesus, He said, How do you know me? In other words, he's saying that I, I never spoke to you, you never spoke to me. How do you know my character? How do you know that I have integrity? And Jesus tells him, Right? Jesus said, I saw you while you were under the fig tree before Philip called you. Now, if you remember in last week's lesson, the fig tree played a very important role. We said that fig tree represents Israel, but not only represents Israel, it also means study of the law of Moses. In other words, studying the Torah. And you see, Nathaniel was a man with character and integrity because he sought the truth. And we know that Jesus is the truth. His word is the truth of what Jesus said, Nathaniel, he said, he said, Rabbi, you truly are the son of God, right? So he acknowledges that Jesus is the son of God, that, that he is the Messiah. He says, you are the king of Israel in last week's lesson. And Jesus tells him, follow me. He says, and if you follow me, you're going to see many more miracles. And the first miracle that Jesus did, we're going to discuss tonight. And that's Jesus at a wedding banquet, turning water into wine. So open up your Bibles to the Gospel of John in chapter 2. And let's start with verse 1. And verse 1 says this. And on the third day, a wedding took place in the Galilee. And Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me, Jesus said. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jugs used by the Jews for purification, some of your Bibles might say ceremonial washing, each holding twenty to thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet and they did so and the master of the banquet tasted the water. Been turned into wine. He did not realize where he had come from. Though the servants who had drawn the water, they knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and he said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best. So let's go back to verse 1. And decipher and discuss what is taking place in verses 1 through 10 in chapter 2 of the Gospel of John. Verse 1, going back, says this, and on the third day. Now, this word and here is used here to make a connection. And What I mean here is this. See, our Bibles have chapters in it. But originally, when it was written, it was written as one big book. It wasn't separated into chapters until much later on. So what we see here with this word, and, as we begin chapter 2, it is to tell us that we are still talking about the same concept of redemption as we did last week. See, God wants us to give a proper understanding of really what redemption means. So let's go back to the text. It says, and on the third day took place at Cana in the Galilee, and Jesus' mother was there. Now this word, third day. This is here to give the reader a narrative. In other words, it gives a historical base for this wedding. See, whenever a day or information is given that pinpoints time, it is to tell us that it is written a historical event greater revelation here that we, we can understand from this term, the third day. And What am I talking about? You see, when we began to study the gospel of John, let's think back about three, four weeks ago, we pointed out in chapter one in the book of John that it starts off with the phrase in the beginning. And we know that this is the same phrase and a popular phrase that's used in the book of Genesis. Because that's what's used in the book of Genesis. That's how the book of Genesis begins, in the beginning. So we talked about the fact that there is a connection between creation and the book of John, we can say. Right? We said that three, four weeks ago. And and what I want you to see here is that the third day is very, very important, going back to the book of Genesis in chapter 1. See, we talked about the fact that when God created the heavens and the earth, that it was empty, that it was void, it was formless. This means that everything was out of order. But see, God began to work. God began to change, to change it. And how he began to change it, because through illumination, God said, let there be light, if you remember. And because he spoke it, there was an outcome. And each day we see where God does something specifically and at the end of day one he says it was good, then at the end of day two, when he creates, he said it is good, but when we get to the third day, yeah, he says it is good at the end, but he says it is good, behold, it is good, it is very good. He says it twice. Let's go back to the Genesis chapter 1 starting in verse 9. This is what it says. And God said, "Let the water under the sky be gathered at one place and let the dry land appear." And so it was. God called the dry ground land and he gathered the waters and he called them seas. And God, this is what it says, saw that it was good. Then God said, "Let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants, Trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. So God says it was good. Twice on the third day, right? So, what does that tell us from a Jewish concept, right? The third day is seen as very, very unique. It's very, very important to the Jewish people. Because God says it twice. He says, Behold, it's good, it's very good, right? And Judaism puts a great emphasis on this term, third day. And one of the ways they did this in, in, in their tradition was. To symbolize the third day, that anytime a marriage took place in the Jewish community, it had to take place on the third day of the week. So it shouldn't surprise us when we look at verse 1 in chapter 2 that it says, On the third day, they came about a wedding in the Galilee. Now, we talked about this term Galilee before, and we learned. Last week, that this term Galilee is related to the Hebrew word, which means to reveal. So what the scripture here is telling us is that God will use this marriage in order to give us revelation about redemption. You see, it is through a biblical understanding of marriage that we are going to have a better understanding of redemption. And you might say, what is redemption and how does the redemption work? Is the work of Messiah. What else the scripture says it says that Jesus' mother was there, so we see Mary, Jesus' earthly mother, is present as well. Now, this is important because remember, women at this time in society really didn't take precedence, they really wasn't that important. If you want to say they were second class citizens, they were second class citizens, right? Because it was all about the men, but we see here the focus and the emphasis on this. Is that Jesus' mother was there? Now, anytime a woman takes priority in scripture, like this right here, right, it gives us a concept of redemption. We stated this several times before. Now, what am I talking about? Let's go back to the book of Exodus. Remember, we're dealing with the Jewish nation, we're dealing with the Jews. And the Jews today, their Bible is called the Torah, it's the first five books of our Bible. Now, they read the prophets, the Pharisees do. The Sadducees just read the Torah, the first five books. But if you go back to the Torah, let's go back to the book of Exodus. If we go back to the book of Exodus, when did God first move to do the work of redeeming Israel, right? A lot of you would say through Moses. That's not right. That's not true. God began to move. He began to work with two Hebrew midwives, if you remember. Let's go back to the story, right? It's found in Exodus 1, 15 through 22. I'm not quoting scripture here, but I'm just going to tell you a little bit about the story. You know, at this time, you remember Joseph was sold into slavery. Joseph became very close to Pharaoh at that time. And because he became very close to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh trusted him, right? Because of the dream that he had about there was going to be seven years of, of hard times. But in order... To make it through the hard times, they had to save seven years of wheat. And if you remember the story in the book of Exodus, they saved up wheat for seven years. Then the drought hit. Well, they had more than enough, not just for Egypt, but for the whole world at that time. And the whole world at that time was the Middle East, if you remember. And you had people from all over the Middle East going to Egypt to buy grain. So so because of Joseph, because of God and what God did through Joseph, you can say, right? Amen. That Egypt was spared. But Egypt wasn't only spared because of Joseph. Joseph ended up making money for Egypt. And because of that, Pharaoh loved him. Pharaoh put him second in command of all of Egypt. And you see, there was a problem when that Pharaoh died off. And if you remember, at the end, his brothers come, have the story, and they end up getting food and they find out who Joseph is. And Joseph goes to Pharaoh and he says, Can I move my family here? Meaning the entire Israelites. Now, the entire Israelites at that time was maybe 100 to 150, 200 people. It wasn't really much. And and Pharaoh said, absolutely. And Pharaoh puts them right outside of the major city and he lets them tend to themselves. He doesn't mess with them. Well, that Pharaoh dies off and a new Pharaoh takes command. He takes control. And the new Pharaoh that takes control, he's not so much in tune with Joseph. He doesn't like the Hebrews. And the Hebrews, the Israelites, are really populating. They're overpopulating. They're getting to where they're getting to be more than the Egyptians. So, what this new king does, he sets a decree, he sets a law, and he tells the Hebrew midwives that help during birth when you see a baby born, uh, Israeli, a Hebrew baby born, he says, kill it. But the women, you can let them live. But you see, these two Hebrew midwives. They feared God. They believed in God. And they didn't do what Pharaoh said. They did just the opposite of what Pharaoh said. And they let those Hebrew boys live. And one of them was Moses. And It was through Moses, yes, that Moses eventually, God used Moses to let them out of Egypt into the promised land, into the wilderness to reach the promised land. But it, it started all because of these two women. These two women that were obedient to God, that feared God. See the question, do we fear God like that? Do we fear God so much that we in tune right? Not to the world, but what really what the Lord is telling us, what the Spirit is telling us, right? See the scripture, what the scripture is telling us right here through these Hebrew words midwives it's about redemption that redemption that Moses did for the Israelites started with these two women why because they feared God and they were true to God which the message is for us that if we fear the Lord and we true to God and we walk with God that we obedient to God like these two Hebrew midwives right that God will work for our betterment that God will work for our good amen And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. So now we see that Jesus and his disciples are also at this wedding. Verse 3, when the wine goes, there's no more wine. They drank all the wine at the wedding, but the reception still going on. The ceremony is still going on. Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Look at that phrase, when the wine was gone. This very important biblical concept here. Because when we talk about wine, one of the things that should come to our mind is love. Why do I say that? Because if you know your Bible and you read the Song of Solomon or what's called the Song of Songs, if you read it carefully, the term wine appears several times in that book. But it's always within the context of love. It speaks about love. So we can say that there's a relationship between wine and love. We also know that wine is synonymous with joy. It's synonymous with happiness, right? So what this story is, it's, it's, it's an historical event here for the purpose of revealing biblical truth. That's what Jesus wants us to see here, right? See, what happens is this. There's this couple, and this couple is getting married, right? And we know that a wedding is based on love. It's it's based on the reflection you can say of happiness of joy. Right? Why am I saying that? Because if you read the prophets and you know the prophets and you know the Bible and you know what the prophets say, the prophets talk about a small voice, the sound of joy, the sound of love and happiness, right, between God and Israel. So what we see here is a relationship, a marriage, right, between a bride and a groom, and all that involves is happiness. It involves joy. It involves love. So when the scripture tells us that they ran out of wine, it's telling us that they don't have enough love. They don't have enough joy at this wedding or or in this marriage as as it should have. But, But when we look at this and we listen to what I just said and what the scripture means, this really isn't unusual. Because you see many times in today's world, after a few years of marriage, what happens to couples? They end up separating. Sad to say, it's a shame. They end up, most end up getting divorced because they might say, you know, I don't love him or her, or, or, you know, I'm not happy with the relationship anymore. It kind of just lost its zeal. It's kind of boring, right? You can say that they ran out of wine. They ran out of happiness. They ran out of joy. They ran out of love, you can say, right? So so we're talking about a relationship that is not what it should be. It's, it's a relationship that's inadequate. it's a relationship that is insufficient right and, and how should we understand that? You see many times in scripture when God speaks about his relationship with Israel, he says that I am the husband and Israel is what the wife. And we know something about this relationship. this relationship there's a problem. right Now we know that marriage is a covenant and a covenant is agreement made between two people or between parties. So we can say that this covenant relationship is far removed from where it should be. But What's going to be the solution of this marriage, right? The the solution is going to be redemption. So what the scripture says at the wedding, it means they ran out of wine, they ran out of love, they ran out of happiness, they ran out of joy. You can say it's a shame. And what Jesus is telling us here, he's saying that when a marriage fails, Shameful thing. Why you might say? Because you see, a marriage is a covenant, and it's supposed to be used as a vessel to manifest God's glory. You see, it is to reveal this covenant relationship that this man is supposed to have with God and through God with his wife. So when the marriage ends, Jesus is saying right here, God is saying it's a shameful situation. See, God looks doesn't look, look down at this. Because a marriage is supposed to symbolize him being in the middle. And it's supposed to symbolize him getting all the glory and all the praise. But when a marriage fails, it's shameful. And Jesus' mother said to them, he said, she said, there's no more wine. So Mary, Jesus' mother, says, do something. Because really, there's nothing left. Jesus, do something. And and look what Jesus tells her in verse 4. Jesus says, woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. Now, Jesus uses this term woman. Now, when you first look at that, you would say that's disrespectful. But it's not. It's a term that in the Jewish community means the same thing as man in the English community. So this is not being disrespectful. This is having very much respect for his mother. So he says, woman, why do you involve me? You know what Jesus is saying here? Jesus is telling her, this isn't my role. This is not why I came. But but look what else he says. My hour has not He's saying, I haven't come into this world to do this. I haven't come into this world for the purpose of solving little issues like that, minor problems. See, what Jesus means is this. Jesus means I have a greater purpose. And the outcome of that purpose will end all problems in this world. That's what Jesus is saying. Verse 5, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. We see here that Mary, his earthly mother, is taking charge. She tells the servants, whatever he says, you must do what he says. Now, again, the focus of this text, of this verse right here, is on his mother, Mary. So We can say when a woman takes precedence in in Scripture, When when a woman is dominant in Scripture, what is that revealing to us? It points to redemption. So right here, whatever she says and why she says it is for the purpose of redemption. Verse 6. Nearby stood six stone water jugs. The kind used by the Jews for purification. Some of your Bibles might say ceremonial washing. Each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Now, I want you to see how important what we're learning here, right, has to deal with Jewish tradition. Let's look at this first number here, six. We know that numbers in the Bible represent something. Anytime there's a number in the Bible, it's important because it means something. It represents something. And we know in Jewish culture, six has to do with grace. So we can say that there's always a connection. There's always a relationship between grace and redemption, right? It's by the grace of God that we are saved through faith in Jesus. You see, it's by the grace of God that he sent Jesus, his only son, that we can have a chance at everlasting life. Amen. That we can have a chance to be redeemed. Right. Because without grace, we can say there's no redemption. Amen. So so we see here that there are six water jars. Now, the jars are here for a purpose. The jars of water were there for purification tradition. You see, it was a law. that They had to follow. Remember, Judaism is all about man-made laws, right? And one of their laws was the purification, the, the, the ceremonial tradition, the purification tradition. Now, why is this important, you see? Because, you see, Jesus is going to use this, right, to do his first miracle. He's going to use these water jugs, so to speak, the stone jugs, right? Remember, there are six of them, each holding 20 to 30 gallons of water in it. Jesus is God in the flesh right? And the scripture tells us that we got all things are possible, amen? So if the issue was simply get some wine, Jesus could have did that in many different ways. Think about it, right? He could have just spoken into existence and boom, it would have happened, right? He could have just told his servants, his disciples, I want you to go and pick up some more wine. I mean, there's many different ways that he did it, but the fact of how he did it and why he did it, importance has great significance to us right now there here are those six jars they're left there for purification ritual now what am i speaking about about this purification ritual right
1: see when a woman
0: i'm gonna get very technical here because there's there's no other way to, to put it but this is what it means purification ritual when a woman enters into the age where she becomes a woman in other words, she has her monthly menstruation cycle, right? With the first one, she has a change in her status. You might say, what is that change in her status? In the Jewish culture, she has now become what's known as a nida. And when this happens, she cannot be touched by a man. In other words, she's in a state where she is forbidden. The night before she gets married, they're going to take her into these jugs of water, into these stone jugs of water, right? And it's called a McVeigh. This is something very similar to what they do in baptism. And they're going to immerse her. Because remember, in baptism, when you get immersed, it's a change of status, right? That which was forbidden now becomes that which is what? Permissible. In other words, that which was unclean becomes now what? This is the basis for a man taking a wife, This purification process, right? Because now she is, she's clean. So that means. Now she couldn't be touched, but now because she went through this process, this McVeigh, she's cleansed, right? She's permissible now. So What Jesus says and what Jesus is teaching us here, that it's only through him and only him that there can be a change. Change that brings about a relationship that one lacking, right? One that was insufficient. Now to a relationship that involves him. And when you involve him, you're going to involve love. You're going to have joy. You're going to have happiness, right? Because he's at the center of it. Verse 7. Jesus says to his servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. So we see here that Jesus, Jesus commands his servants. He tells them, fill the jars with water. And look what it says in verse 8. They did it. Then he tells them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And so they did. So he's giving them another order. See, Jesus right now had just turned water into wine. Now he's telling them, take it to the master of the banquet. You say who's this master of the banquet? Look at verse 9. I'm gonna explain that to you. The master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. What the master of the banquet did, look what the scripture says: he pulls the bridegroom aside. So we see here that this master of banquet, what was his job? His job would be the first one taste at this ceremony at any, now he had done thousands of this, this was his job, he got paid to do this, right, he got paid to to taste the food, or taste the wine, to taste the drink, whatever it was that they were serving he was the first one to taste it, he had done this thousands and thousands of times before, but this time it surprised him because after he tasted the wine, the scripture tells us the end of, uh, of verse 9. He called the bridegroom aside. So he pulls the bridegroom aside, and look what he tells him in verse 10. He says, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guest had drank too much. But you have saved the best till now. So let's go back to that first text. He says, everyone brings out the choice wine first. And Then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. So you see, what he's saying is normally people would bring their best wine first, the most expensive wine at first. And after people drank a little while, right, get a little tipsy or whatever, they would start to sell them the cheap or give them the cheap wine, right? Message for us. That's see, that's how life is when we get married. What am I talking about? Right? See, when you first get married, you're happy, you're joyful. There's happiness, there's contentment, right? You, you feel the love, right? This is what happens at the very beginning of a marriage. But you see, as time goes on in that marriage, it begins to wear out, right? For most, for the majority of us, that's how it is. It gets dull. The marriage gets boring, right? It isn't as important, right? You have that sense. You lose that sense of joy. You lose that sense of happiness. You lose that sense of love towards your partner, right? But what we see here, what Jesus does is just the opposite. The message for us is this, that when Jesus is included in a wedding, when Jesus is included in a marriage, When he's part of that marriage covenant, he does something. He gives us the best. He makes it better and better. He makes it stronger and stronger. And and this is why Jesus needs to be the center of our lives. This is why Jesus needs to be the center of our marriage. He needs to be the center of our family. Amen? Remember, the hierarchy according to God is this. is God first through his son Jesus. Jesus is the only way to the Father. Then Your spouse is next. See, it's not your children that come second. It's not your job that comes second, right? It's not your parents that come second. I'm just telling you biblically how it is. It's God through his son Jesus first. Them, they at the top. they at the center of our lives. They come first. Then it's your spouse. Then it's your kids else is important after that in the hierarchy but it's God your spouse and your children that's why you should take time right to, to, to spend time with your spouse You know, take some time to, to, to get away for a couple of hours maybe you know just be alone and just you know talk keep God at the center of your marriage keep God first place in your life Make sure that that doesn't matter what's going on, but you and your household, we're going to what? We're going to serve the Lord. Today, we will serve the Lord. And every day, we will serve the Lord because the Lord comes first. Because if you do that, He makes your marriage stronger. He makes your marriage better. Look what else the scripture says. Go back to the scripture. But you have saved the best until now. This manager, this banquet manager, he says, you know, uh, you saved the best for, for last. See, even though this wedding was going on for a while, they ran out of wine. Jesus turns six gallons of water. Stone oh, jars, you can say. I say gallons. It's not gallons. It's jars because each jar had 20 to 30 gallons in it turns it into wine. And as he tasted this, he said, man, this is the best wine I've ever tasted. That's what he's saying. Right? Now we know something. Scripture speaking of wine. And we know that wine has a quality. In other words, the best wine is the older wine. And people that know a little bit about wine, they know that. You let wine sit on a wine rack for years. Why? Because it ages. It gets better with age. It gets better with time. So what Jesus is saying here is this. That when we allow God to move, when we seek him first and we allow him to move in our lives, right? Then it's going to change us. He's going to be purifying us, or in this case, this couple at this wedding, in order that they have joy, in order that their love would be manifested. Why? Because you see, this joy, this love in this marriage has a purpose. You see, that joy and that love in your marriage has a purpose. Not just for the couple, but it's a testimony of God's glory in that relationship. The a relationship is a covenant relationship with God. You see, marriage isn't just between a man and a woman. Between man and God and woman and God. And when they get married, they become one. So it's between them and God, right? And if we put God at the center of our marriage, if we put God at the center and we draw it closer and closer to God through his son Jesus, at the center of our family, at the center of our life, at the center of our marriage, then he's gonna make us stronger. Because we're going to use God in a manifesting way to give him all the glory through our marriage. Amen. And that ends our lesson for today. We'll be back next week. We're going to continue on in chapter 2 in the Gospel of John. Y'all be a blessing for someone this week. Go be the beacon, that light that Jesus speaks about, that he commands his disciples to do. Go make a difference today and this week for his kingdom. Tell somebody about Jesus. Tell somebody that, 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 that they are loved, they are, they are most wanted by Jesus. Enlarge his kingdom this week. Amen. We appreciate you all tuning in and listening. We love you guys. God bless. Have a wonderful week.